Hey everybody, welcome to episode 52, that's right, one year of Tactical Crouch Podcast. I'm Kick Tripod, joined of course by Yiska and Volamel. But we've got a special guest this week, coming all the way from LA, home in LA, LA Valiant Coach Promise. Hey, first of all, I'm going to get a tat sleeve and yours is sick. Let's just get that out of the way. That's that's awesome. Looks very good. I got another piece done on my Uh, arm. Are you going to keep it? Uh, black or are you gonna add color? Yeah, no, I'm keeping it black. That's classy. Sick. That's yeah, that's awesome. So, sorry, audio listeners, um, <laughs> you can't you just see. Just have to tune in. You just know? imagine. Just, yeah, just imagine. imagine. Uh, yeah, but hey, promise. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. I mean, I know that you basically been grinding for however long, multiple long hours every week doing the Overwatch League weekly grind, and then you finally get a chance to kind of relax a little bit, maybe take the foot off the gas for a few weeks, and then you decide That's to true. come yeah. listen to Joe and Yiska talk. So <laughs> kudos to you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome show. Yiska, you look different today. Yeah. You had to bring it up, didn't you? KTSF. I mean, it was a weird day overall. Starting from, oh, maybe I get my Coexalar Mini <laughs> to being called by uh, UPS. Uh, yeah, the uh, the address, like the number here, uh, it's called, it's addressed to Yiska, but there was no Yiska on the doorbell. So the driver w- went home and then I was like, okay, I guess I'm getting tomorrow. And then now I cleaned up and apparently I threw my glasses away. <laughs> God. It's amazing. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. that sucks. Yeah, I'm going dumpster diving after the show. How, how, I'm looking forward to it. How badly do you need your glasses? Uh, how blind are you? Well, I'm, I'm nearsighted, so not, currently it's not a problem, but uh, I probably can't drive a car, if I'm being honest. And I will have to drive a car. So. <laughs> wow, speaking of just... Uh, putting damning evidence on the internet. (laughs) You can't like go to court now and be like, I wasn't driving without my glasses on, or I wasn't planning on doing that. Be like, well, we have you on a podcast (laughs) with your glasses off saying you're going to do that. Just don't get caught. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty easy. See, promise now. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. If someone recognizes you that you drive over, you just got reverse. Okay. Do you... (laughs) Now it's premeditated. Great job. Do you have the <laughs> Do you have the chores app in Germany? The one where you can like hire somebody to do like your housework and stuff? You could, would you just like pay like twenty bucks to have one, someone go dumpster diving for you? Hmm. I don't think we have that. I never heard of it. No, I forget. I, what it's, I think it's called either. Chore. Hmm. But there's I know there's an app to have like people do like kind of candy-ish type things around the house. Like, chains. I need you to fix my fire alarm. Yeah, something like TaskRabbit. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. so, um, cool. Alright, so, <laughs> small talk. Let's really quick, before we uh, talk with Promise here about himself, the LA Valiant, and everything else in between, let's just get that news out of the way <laughs> to fix the alarm clock again. So uh, Promise is in the team house. One of the players has an alarm clock, and apparently they uh, don't turn it off unless somebody knocks on their door. <laughs> so they it's, just. I kind of want to know who it is. Yeah, 
Maybe he'll tell us. I'm going to ask maybe, him. Maybe. Whose alarm clock is it? We'll just slip it in. Yeah. Promise. We have to know. Is it a player's okay. alarm clock? No, it's Reprice. He's still in bed. Oh. Uh, he wakes up super slow. So he has like a super loud alarm clock that just keeps going off. <laughs> Usually, I don't mind too much. Sure. But today, it's kind of the wrong day for it. So <laughs> if he could yeah. keep it off, that would be great. <laughs> um, That's too funny. But yeah, I mean, so we, we went through the final part of the playoffs this past week. San Francisco Shock advance. We've got a glad or not a gladiators. Uh, I wish uh, a Titans versus uh, Shock Grand Finals in Philadelphia. Not oh. un unexpected, right? I mean, you no, arguably, no. if you take because NYXL is the only one in Pacific, right, and the other two are in Atlantic. Titan Shock. Yeah. So. Maybe. You could definitely make an argument there that those are kind of the best two. Like, I don't know. Yiska, do you feel bad about this uh, grand final? Would you rather have seen a different team? Different uh, I, think, I think this is the best final we could have possibly hoped for. Like, it's... <laughs> Jesus Christ, Reeb. Um I, I think that it's actually... It's a heaven sent that... Through, I, I had a tweet that, that pretty much said this. Mm-hmm. I thought Shock and Titans making it is the best two teams making it all over the entire season. And we're blessed with a, a playoff that probably won't be a blowout or a final. And it's, it's also that these teams, that they remained as dominant as they did, I consider a statistical anomaly, or these teams are actually just so much better than everyone else, that through different metas, they were able to dominate the way they did, and also keeping the kind of style of that, right? Like, the shock, when they roll, they roll. In in general, the playoffs were almost like a mini replay of the entire season, in a sense. So, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very grateful, I would even say, for that grand final. What's your take, Promise? I mean, are these are these the two teams that you think probably should have been there? Like, if you're kind of looking at the strongest teams overall? I mean, looking at the brackets on my left monitor, it's like Giska said. Like, there's no surprising results in there, except for maybe Atlanta against NYXL. That was, like, the only match that kind of surprised me. All the other matches seem like how I would predicted them to go. Before, I guess right? also Atlanta Shock, right? Yeah, Before I mean, three. obviously Atlanta Shock, mm-hmm. but yeah. then again, yeah. Atlanta throughout the season, throughout this year, has always been like the the giant slayer, I guess, where they yeah. beat a good yeah. team and then they kind of fall off again, go back to being mediocre. <laughs> I remember some coach telling me, how do you prepare for Baby Bay that throws grabs half map? Like, how do you yeah. do during GOATS, you know? Like, it's just, you can't, just can't. Yeah, he would pull off graphs that you just don't expect. Hmm. Especially in GOATS meta, where you it's kind of like almost chess streamlined, where you expect certain moves at certain times, and then Baby Bay just tosses the graph half across the map. It works sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. So High risk, kind of, high reward, yeah. yeah. Mm. So we are going to discuss like kind of the grand finals and break it down in the next episode because we have 10 days until the grand finals happen. So next week's episode is going to be largely dedicated 
to that, but I do want to hear from you, Promise. Do you have a prediction, a team that you think is going to ultimately win? If you had to pick a winner here, obviously a whole lot on the line for you here, and you've done a ton of research into it, and we're going to hold you to it. I have literally no idea. I I would think it's a 60-40 slightly in favor of San Francisco, but it could go either way. Like both mm. these teams have played each other to map seven or whatever plenty of times. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes for Vancouver or Shock. Yeah, it's got to be close. The, the really surprising thing, the really surprising thing to me though, is that the Shock essentially went six, they, they swept, they went 16 and 0 after they lost to uh, True. Atlanta. Yeah. They haven't dropped the map since like. Oh man, is this is this just a is Doomfist right now just a like a a godsend for Sinatra and the Shock Joe? Because like I, that's the biggest thing I see in their dominance is the fact that Sinatra is just I don't know. He feels like he's playing uh, Doomfist four weeks ahead of everybody else. It's like he's had all this extra time on him or something. I think he's. I, I think Doomfist being in the meta definitely lends itself to both of these teams uh, doing uh, exceedingly well. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the primary reason. I think that either of these teams uh, they've shown to adapt across a number of different meta games, a number of different compositions. Um, it doesn't shock me, no pun intended, uh, to see these two teams thrive in this meta game. Um, does does it help that, you know, Huxall and Sinatra are both uh, impressive, to say the least, on Doomfist? Definitely helps, but I wouldn't say it's the the primary reason. I think it's just the, you know, the coaching staff, the the, the, the kind of teamwork-oriented um, excellence that they've shown throughout the entire season. Um, just two, two of the most impressive teams that we've seen, I think, in Overwatch to date. Um, probably, I think, I, I would point towards as more of a uh, a more telling reason of why they've been so successful for so long. And, you know, to, to New York's credit, similarly to, to New York as well, going all the way back to season one and seeing how successful they've been there and, you know, how, how they've kind of returned. They've had a, a small renaissance in uh, the late playoff run. So, yeah, I think just really well-built teams, well-coached teams, and you, you get, you get some good results. Yeah. This- the thing is, I, I don't, I'm not sure how much of a heaven sent it is for Shock, really, that this is the meta, because if you think of even stage four, they didn't skip a beat, right? Like, they, they were there. We shouldn't overvalue that match against the Titans either, by the way. Like, I think it's pretty clear that they were sandbagging, literally. Like, you don't put Repel and whatnot in if you're not. And, um... Sure. It's, it's like... Still, Architect was able to slot into that roster. Now, Striker is able to slot into that roster. I honestly think the best that could have happened for Shock was to get a meta that isn't good for Vancouver. That would have almost... Like, there's their their coverage... Of, of course, other teams can get lucky then, but that would have probably been the, uh, the luckiest that Shock would have gotten. Now that Huxal looks like a cheat code, uh, in, in this meta, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, it 
definitely keeps the series very are you, very are you telling me hoxall's got like a, a game genie or like some sort of game shark <laughs> and he's just cheating the system is that is that what you're telling me he just got the the up up, up down downs oh, going on game shark pretty much really? What was the glove? Was that like a cheat thing or is that just like some like 90s like, Isn't that like weird the power glove or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah, game glove, I think it was called. Something like that, yeah. yeah you you're telling me he's just got one of those? I mean, just apparently like the, the, the thing is glove. power glove? Okay. So but the thing is I I honestly think he's he's still a better player or a better Doomfist from what he's shown than um Sinatra. The thing is, he he also has to do everything by himself, like in a in a ma major way, right? Like uh, the way uh, Shock, for instance, sets up in many ways with halts and whatnot um, seems to be much more synergistically. It looks like when, when they're playing, Huxley just does shit that like nobody else is attempting and is getting away uh, with it against the best team. So. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that will actually work against Shock as much. I also think two weeks of practice is a lot of time. I wonder who they're practicing against, by the way. But um, at the same time, I, I think these matches will look very different from what the quarterfinals looked in terms of, uh, or semifinals, in terms of um, strategy. Promise, how different would you think that, like, if you were going into like a season grand finals, you've got two weeks to prepare. How different mm -hmm. would that practice look like? Would you think than um, like a normal week to week type thing? I mean, first thing is who can I even practice against? Like mm -hmm. we said before, it's like who is actually still practicing because most teams that fell out the next day, you snip and half of your team is in Korea. Like that's usually how it works for most of these teams. So you would ideally have to find someone that plays a similar playstyle to Vancouver and is willing to practice against you repeatedly. And then I would probably start to practice set plays. If I have two weeks and I have only this one opponent that I need to practice against, you can do a lot of very specific stuff against teams, which you don't really have the option to during the season since you're usually prepping for two matches or some teams chose to only prep for one team because they think they're much stronger than the other team and they don't need to. But in the finals case, I would expect them to hopefully run certain drills. I think that it's very helpful to run drills, but it's not very common in Overwatch League practice scrims right now. Like most teams, how scrims work is kind of like you show up and then it's like a real match. Like people play it out like a real match and then you leave, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping that if you have two weeks of preparation time for just one specific ma like match and you can like draft maps and you can prepare drafts on maps, that I hope I'm hoping that teams like prepare set plays and actually practice those set plays. So you said drills. Like do they actually run like it's like set plays, you just go and reset them over and over and over again? I Is mean one of I did that in previous teams. Like on Florida Mame, I remember like we would load up cough and just run first fights for an hour straight against teams and goats just run first fights reset the first fight after two people die and then just run it again for like an hour and a lot of a lot of the set plays and like drills that you can run are limited because you can't just recreate certain fight scenarios like oh my team has graph advantage so how do we play this so oftentimes like very hard to recreate and like reset and rerun 
but for simple things like rollouts and rotations like you can definitely like reset maps and run it over and over again and it helps a ton for players it's just building muscle memory most of the time interesting makes sense well, like I said, we'll talk more about the grand finals when they're coming out um, next week. We've got a whole show to dedicate to that, so we will definitely discuss it more. But I just wanted to get some of Promise's thoughts on it all. Um, I I do think too. I think Shock, man. I think Shock have an advantage. Um, I do, especially Their with NYXL taking so the seven. Good. Like, you know, they're you're right. Coaching staff is so good. Dream in chat, you know, talked about how good the supports are for the Shock right now. Yeah. Like it's. You, you look at Shock and there's like no weak point. Like all the, all the team, every single team has a weak point. Like you look at the roster, there's always a weak point where you're like, okay, in this meta, that player is not going to perform well. But Shock, every single meta, no matter what you throw at them, they somehow pull out a roster that happens to be the perfect hero pool required for every single meta. And it's so frustrating to play against them and be up against them because it's like impossible to prepare for them. Yeah. Do you think there was a weak point uh, for the Titans in any of the metas? Oh yeah, like stage 3 meta especially, I mean they lost to us, like we were the first ones to meet mm -hmm. them, which is like very clearly an example of them like being too slow to adapt to what is being thrown at them. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Cool, alright. Promise. I've got, I've, I want to ask you about this last season for the Valiant. Um, so you came in, so the, the Valiant started out 0 and 7, 0 and 8, actually. Um, you come in, I think it was early April is when you were uh, signed and stuff. Given, sorry, I've got chat messages going everywhere. <laughs> I'm very bad at multitasking. <laughs> so, um, so you start out 0 and 7, people are, are kind of panicking a little bit. You come in since the time that you come in as a coach. I think I've got it right here. Uh, you join in the second week of stage two. Since that 0 and 8 start, you go mm -hmm. 12 and 8. You miss playoffs by arguably one win. Yeah. Um, what, what took place in that kind of shift after that first oh stage? I don't know. Like, there's so much. Like, w when I parted ways with Florida Mayhem. I was obviously, I didn't have a job lined up. So I just decided it's best for both the organization and for me to part ways. That's just the decision I made and they respected that decision and gave me probably five or six weeks, like housing me and feeding me the whole way through and just giving me enough time to find a new job, which I don't think most teams would have done then. So kudos to Florida Mayhem to actually giving me the opportunity instead of sending me on the first flight back home, like instantly. And once I started talking to Packing and he was kind of in the middle of being the interim head coach and like slowly taking over and slowly kind of rebuilding the structure of Valiant, they were considering picking up another assistant coach. And the second we started shifting the roster more towards a Western audience, like a Western kind of dominant mm -hmm. roster. A lot of the Korean players we had and the Korean staff wasn't that happy for obvious reasons. I mean, you don't speak English very well and all of a sudden most of the roster is English speaking. You can't really do your job anymore. So we kind of, most of stage two was really spent 
rebuilding the trust of the players because if you go 0 and 7 or 0 and 8 even because we lost the first ma uh, match in stage two it's very hard for players to trust an entire new coaching staff and system so you have to kind of hold the hand a little bit and like hey it's okay i know you've been hurt over the past months but i'm here to change that and i'm here to help you trust in your teammates and especially the coaching staff again so most of that was just small increments of hey i told you to do x and you did x and it worked out great for you listen if you listen to me we can get you more of these success moments and once you get more of these success moments like players open up more and they start interacting with you in water review they get more open to presenting their ideas to their players because they're not afraid to get shut down anymore and a lot of that is just slowly building up trust it took a long, 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 long time. And it was probably the most stressful coaching experience I've ever had, but it paid off for the most part for us. How, how did the meta changes factor into that? Do you think that the meta also favored you? Or do you think that a, a team that maybe if, if the LA Valiant didn't mm -hmm. develop that struct, uh, structure of trust between coaches and each other, did they still look like a team that might be Oh and seven, one and six, two and five. Oh yeah. If we didn't change from the ground up what was destroyed essentially, we there, there is no point in showing up for matches if the players like fundamentally don't like playing with each other. And as long as that's case, like you can have the best players in the world. As long as there's like that one split second of doubt in their mind in game where you're like, you have the choice on Genji to dash in and hope that your Zen has the orb on you, or you don't make the dash because you think your Zen is a trash player and you don't trust him anymore. You know, like you have to build up that trust. And if you don't have that trust, it literally doesn't matter what you do. Like you can be the best coach in the world. If your players don't like playing with each other and they don't want to trust each other, there's nothing you can do about it. You will continue losing matches. And I think with the meta change, I don't think it favored us i mean we were never a goats team to begin with so when we got the opportunity to shift towards a sombra goats that obviously favored us because we don't want to play goats against san francisco shock or vancouver titans like what's the point of showing up for the match when you know before you even enter the server that you lose against them so the changes with the sombra goats definitely helped us but i think the biggest change that we needed was adding someone that knows how to in-game lead. And I think that's why we made the decision to trade Fade away and pick up Fact. Because while Fade is an absolute beast on main tank for obvious reasons, like we've seen what he has done in uh, Season 1, he wasn't the in-game leader that we wanted as the coaching staff. So having Fact come in and kind of... Fact is like, I always call him like a mini-coach because you slot him in any team in-game and he will be able to break down very complex rotations in definite tasks for everyone to do. So it's like one person literally micromanaging most of the team. And once we got the trust established with Fact and all the players were helping info feed for him and were willing to make their own calls as well, a lot of our team play got way way better to the point where we could keep up with the top teams what ended up like kind of being the downfall for us is obviously that some of our players are just not that good mechanically compared to their counterparts like if you look at the 
roster of San Francisco Shock, like who is really a weak point mechanically in a GOATS meta there. Right. So I think maybe with better players we could have done a lot better, but I think we got like 98% out of what we could have done as a coaching staff. I don't think we could have done much more than that. Most of what ended up being a downfall for us happened in stage one, which was out of my control, which was out of Packing's control, Stoops' control. Like we did what we could with what we had for the most part. Right. <laughs> Freaking reprises. <laughs> I love how you <laughs> could just hear the boop boop every like 10 minutes or so. Uh, I don't understand why he doesn't turn it off completely. Like, just, just turn it off. Just, yeah, just turn, he just know. keeps hitting snooze and turns <laughs> around again. Katie, like, sets, like, five alarms in the morning, and I don't have to wake up early, so it's, like, from 5.30 yeah. to 6.15, and it's just Damn. straight alarms, and I can go back to sleep until 9. <laughs> like, come on. It's all good. Oh. It's barely. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's it does. Fun. I just think it's funny. Uh, oh, it, it is. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I know you had, I mean... Yiska, do you have any questions kind of regarding the LA Valiant season uh, so far? I mean, it's, like I said, it was definitely one with highs and lows for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was fortunate enough to have um, a lot of discussion with, um, with uh, <clears throat> your general manager and head coach mm-hmm. both at the same time. Uh, not everything in the feature piece can make the cut. So, uh, it was interesting to see. They also sort of broke down the different roles. Of course, it cannot be that extensive. Of course, so yeah. I think it makes sense for you to address what you were specifically uh, tasked to do in the Valiant and what you ended up doing as well, right? Which is not yeah. always 100% the, uh, the same thing, even though I do think that the Valiant are better at this than other teams, where coaches have clearly defined roles. Not not as much in other teams where it's more like okay everyone scramble figure out where you can apply yourself and you got sort of gotta figure it out yourself. So in that sense, you know, if we can, can we kind of define exactly what hat you wore? What was like your your day to day exactly? Were you specifically strategic? Were you more hands on with the players? What exactly yeah. was was your I mean, day to day like? Previously, I mostly did macro strategy for most of my teams. So when I came to Valiant. Stoop was already like super dug down deep in the macro surgery role. So he was already settled in there. So there wasn't much sense for me to come in, pull him out of that role and slot myself in and give him a completely different role because mm-hmm. he would end up with two coaches learning two different roles. Yeah. So I transitioned into play development. So I did, you saw KSF kind of bloom and finally show what he can actually do. That's, mostly me doing like player feedback with him like i think stage two entire the entirety of stage two i worked with nothing but ksf pretty much stage three was the stage where i got demoted to being a sombra coach and basically had to somehow teach shacks how to play sombra in like two days before our first match and when that meta kind of shifted in stage four where we were experimenting with ksf sombra i ended up coaching him a lot of summer but most of my work was kind of figuring out a structure for player development and kind of streamlining the process so that any coach that we might add further down the road like reprice can just slot into my system that i developed and kind of start working instantly instead of 
slowly figuring out what to do. So most of that is for me was player development. Stoop did all the macro strategy part. Packing was doing the head coaching task as much as he can, like talking to players, making sure they're comfortable and happy and they have like no concerns, any doubts, whatever. Like he would deal with all the emotional parts so that all the other coaches could just focus on strictly in-game. That being said, obviously packing. It's like how I always describe our coaching staff. We're kind of like a boys club where there might be roles technically defined, but we don't really stick to those. Like if <laughs> if packing wants to bench a player and all of the other coaches completely disagree, he wouldn't bench the, bench the player despite our wishes not to. He would just be like, okay, I trust you guys. I'm not going to go through with that decision because I respect you enough to not like run over your opinions. Hmm. So it feels much less of the traditional, oh, there's a head coach above me. That's his plan. I just follow along whatever he tells me to do. It's more like all of us ship in and everyone has their part and everyone trusts each other enough to take a back step if that's in favor of the team which makes working in this coaching environment probably the best time I've ever had in terms of like coaching quality compared to all the other teams I worked with before. So you'd say that this was, in one hand, the most challenging, but also the best kind of oh, structural yeah. The season has been extremely fun. Super fun. Like every, every single match, we would show up and we knew from the get-go if we're going to lose or win, just because... We, are reali- we were realistic enough to know at what level we are right now mm-hmm. because we, we are all good coaches and we communicate clearly with the players what we want them to do. And like when we showed up for Vancouver Titans, I think that was the only match where we generally didn't expect to win. And we were just like, eh, fuck it. We try our best, <laughs> see what happens. You know? And we ended up winning like super convincingly, which was like a super good morale boost for the entire team. Because that was like the first win. That was like the turning point for us where we're like, okay, mm-hmm. we're an actual good team now. We're not the O and eight kind of garbage team that people make fun of all the time. Like we can compete at the top if we try hard enough. So take me, you know, indulge me for a moment, you know, take us back to that match, you know, map one and two, mm-hmm. things go, you know, relatively well for you guys. The players come back into the locker room. What What's the general consensus from the coaching staff? Like what, what changed in your message to the players? Because like you said, it sounds like you went into the match, you know, pretty, you know, expectations are we're probably going to lose. We understand that here's, you know, we, we're still going to stick to the game plan, but what, what did anything change? Was it still like, okay, this is, this is what we've drawn out. This is what we're going to stick to maybe a little bit more of a morale boost. Like this is actually going to happen. We can actually do this. Like what, take us through that. I think, most of what happened in the halftime in the Vancouver match was, okay, guys, chill. You're doing well. But the worst thing you can do now is get overconfident and cocky and try to throw your lead in the next match, especially halftime breaks, which is why I have like a love-hate relationship with halftime breaks. To a certain degree, they give you an option to adapt players again and like kind of shift them around. But at the same time, it gives the tempo lead that you have away to the enemy team and they get to like mentally reset again and come out and potentially like shift the tempo in their favor, which you don't want them to do. Ideally, if you are on a hot streak and you're winning mm-hmm. map, map after map, you want them to feel 
feel that and be like, shit, we're losing left and right. What do we do? There's no one. Like coaches in halftime break, I think, have like the most impact out of the entire game because you can shift so much around if you're a good coach and you know how to like streamline what players need to do. Obviously, that doesn't work every single time. For example, the Gladiators match in stage four that we lost, we predicted pretty much every single thing from the coaching staff that they were going to do. And players were aware of that. And we even went into the match with the thought in our head, okay, this is what Scherfer is going to do. This is how we react to it. And this is how we beat it. And players go in-game and boom, head is empty mm-hmm. and they just do whatever they feel like. And in halftime break, you try again to like drag them out of that mental slump. Boom, same thing again. So there's, all, there's a lot of stuff that you can do in halftime. But most of the time, it's just like calming players down, making sure they don't get overhyped or they don't doubt themselves too much. Sure. But yeah, going quickly, going back to the Vancouver game, um, I know that we talked about, you know, um, players buying into the coaching staff after, mm-hmm. you know, a, a big kind of a, a slump, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, was you, you mentioned that as a turning point did you feel like after that victory, after that kind of major upset being the first team to beat them in the regular season, did you see a, a big turnaround in terms of like player morale? Did they start to buy in um, a little bit more or was that already kind of leading up until that point? And do you think that was no. what pushed you over the edge? No, I think the players at that point were already like blind trust. Whatever we told them to do, they would just be like, okay, cool. I'll get it done. Like there was no questioning or if questions came up, it was more of a respectful, hey, I think this could be good from mm-hmm. like a player's perspective. It's important to know how the players feel like, and we sure. continuously ask them and encourage them to come out of their shell and actually like disagree with us. Because as much as it sucks to be wrong as a coach, I would rather be wrong and get the right thing from my player and implement that and win a match rather than put my pride like in front of a player and be like, no, you're wrong. Like I'm right. So they were buying into it completely. I think that was just the confidence boost that they needed. Because if you lose that much, you start doubting yourself as a player. You think you're not good enough anymore. You want to get traded to a different team. You know, that's like the typical concerns that you have when you start losing. It's kind of like, it's just, it just happens. Like there's so much stuff that happens from losing where once you start winning and such a big win is like the break point where you're like, okay, I'm a good player. We're a good team. We can do this if we just keep working hard and we keep going from match to match to match. It's just like Packing always said before the match, every single match in our season was a playoff match. Every single loss we would get would in the end mean we would not make the end of the year playoffs. So every single match was treated by us as the most important playoff match. There was like no downtime. And I think, especially for me, I went from coaching Mayhem Academy in October with no break into OWL, quitting at Mayhem, getting like three-week break, and then going back into OWL. So I've been coaching for like a year straight now, every single day, which is pretty exhausting at some point. So I'm glad that I get a break finally. So you get to come hang out with us. Hell yeah. (laughs) Tell us all your secrets. I don't think I should do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Might get me in trouble with management. No, we don't want to get you in trouble. Did it feel like you 
lost the uh, play-in participation actually against Gladiators, or was it already that like the games against Spark and Soul that were very close, right? The three twos. Yeah. I mean, I think the Soul match was like the most frustrating one because we came into that match knowing we're the better team and we should have won that match, realistically speaking. But it's like, mm -hmm. it was just one of those days where the players kind of feel like a little bit antsy and like midway through the, the match, they kind of lo lose concentration and things go, especially in matches when you can't really talk to them that much. The second something goes wrong and there's no player stepping out and being like, listen, calm down. Shit happens. This is what we do to prevent that from happening. That's when things spiral out of control. Because once things go wrong, things go really wrong. Yeah. Because you don't really take the time. Like your mentality shifts from how did we, how did this happen, and how do we prevent it from happening? To oh shit, it happened. We're trash. Mm -hmm. Like that's usually how players think. Like they don't take a step back and kind of slowly analyze the situation like a coach would do they kind of get emotional and i think that was just one of these days i think that was the frustrate most frustrating loss but at the end of the day we didn't really expect to get that close mm. like when we initially started shifting the team around we were just like okay we hope we get some mediocre stages and next year we kind of like restructure the team a little bit and see what we can do with it but once we actually got that close, I think like every single loss was like a huge hit because players had like these high expectations. Like we're going to go into play-ins and we're going to stomp play-ins and we're going to get into playoffs and we're going to do well and show everyone the kind of team we are. But especially like the meta shift just kind of made it even harder. Especially the stage four meta was just not exactly our meta. We didn't really have a Reaper player. We had a good May player, but we couldn't really play around it that much. And then we had Fact on Arissa, who's like more comfortable on Ryan and Winston, where he can like take charge and like lead the team and call the rotations. Everything that kind of made us successful in stage three kind of broke apart in stage four. So we had to restructure the team and how we play the game again. Because if you play for months in a row, relying on your main tank player to be the main shot caller and all of a sudden he's put in a role where he can't be the main shot caller and if he tries to be the main shot caller you're actively hurting the team it's kind of rough like i think yeah. that was realistically speaking every time someone of us says oh well how did we lose x match and stage four whatever i'm like how did we lose eight matches in a row at the beginning of the year right <laughs> Yeah, like especially yeah. in stage one with goats, where a lot of the teams were, to be honest, like not good at goats, and a lot of the contenders teams were much much better from like a goats fundamental standpoint, not as much mechanics. I think that if you would have had the coaching staff we have right now in stage one with the players we had, even with Faden and everyone still being there, we would have done a lot lot better just by having good coaching and making sure they know what to do on goats. Because when I came in that team, they just didn't know how it works from like a fundamental perspective. This, this leads me to a question that I've been con uh, thinking about a lot recently. And my current conception is, of it is, unless you're super stacked, and even in those cases, it seems like, especially at the start of a meta, mm -hmm. a lot of it is gamble. Oh, yeah. Just like, like for, for instance, like you just 
just expl uh, explained, like when Fact cannot shot call anymore, that's a you know idiosyncrasy of your team. There are infinitesimally many uh, ways the meta could have shifted mm -hmm. and what Blizzard could have done that you cannot prepare for these situations. So do you think essentially like good coaching staff can can probably grind back mm -hmm. into the meta and oh, yeah. reteach these players like these these things, but you can ultimately not find anything or have any, you know, um vaccine against a mid ahead hitting ba you badly no i don't think there's much you can do i think in stage four i think spark was like the best example that showcased that sort of behavior perfectly where they had a super slow start they were a super bad team everyone ranked them at the absolute bottom of all power rankings and midway through stage four all of a sudden they completely change and rise up and that's the coach like we scrimmed them a bunch and you can clearly see the coaching staff like slowly implementing like certain fundamentals and players adapt and learn from their mistakes which is why i'm not a fan of like meta changes so frequently and so shortly before stage starts because the stage four meta shift basically meant for all playoffs teams that were still playing on the old patch basically meant you had like barely any time to practice so a lot of the games that you came into in stage four were basically you roll the dice and hope your players happen to have like a natural feeling of how they're supposed to play in the meta. And if they don't have that natural feeling, you got to start from scratch basically and build them slowly back up, which is why I'm more of a fan of like League of Legends where Riot Games make sure like a certain patch is set. And even if they're like four patches ahead on the live servers, all the competitive teams still play that patch from two months ago. Mm -hmm. If that means they it basically ensures competitive integrity and all the practice that you've had still applies. Like stage three and stage four meta were complete opposites. So we went from a super strategic rotation focused meta to DPS have to frag out and your tanks are basically buying time. And that's kind of like, if you have these shifts, you can basically just hope for the best and hope you can scrape and wins against other teams that also struggle or you're watching Justice and you happen to have like the perfect meta for your players and you just dominate a bunch of mm. matches. Mm. For a coach, that's like the worst part about coaching a watch is how frequently it changes, which is why you see with like four people. And in other games, you see a single coach because the game just doesn't change as frequently yeah. and you mm. don't have to have two coaches looking at your players individually and then you have Stoop doing macro coaching and you have packing kind of keeping the mental of players in check because if you start performing worse in a new meta you're going to start doubting yourself again and you have to handhold people then you have scouting reports and everything it's like overwatch is very coach driven and a lot of the overwatch league teams that do well are usually teams that have at least one or two good coaches just because a team does well doesn't mean every single coach on that team is good like there's mm, always true. exceptions just because you're a losing team doesn't mean your coaching staff is necessarily bad. And just because you're a winning team doesn't mean your coaching staff is good. But I think a lot of, or I'm hoping a lot of organizations are slowly realizing how high the value of good coaches are. And they start investing more into coaches rather than players, because right now it's the opposite. Players earn a lot of money to star players and coaches are kind of left at minimum or slightly above minimum, unless you're a head coach. So 
I'm hoping that it kind of shifts, which is obviously to a certain degree kind of selfish because I'm a coach. Yeah. But, but you still... also understand the value that you bring to a team, oh, yeah. right? And that's, you know, there's, you're totally, totally right to be able to like, you can speak exactly to the value that we bring. I mean, we've seen, you know, the value of coaching. Even oh, there's tangible in, value. Is like, like yeah. even yeah. with the value, right? Like you can, you can actually see and draw direct conclusions between changes and additions in the coaching staff to direct improvement, not just in mm-hmm. the win loss column, but also in, you know, just kind of the, the players mental health as they, you know, go through, or I guess I wouldn't say mental health and like, the mm-hmm. crazy Morale. way but the uh yeah the the um i don't know what the word is uh describe it uh when when they can they, be happy uh, they can weather difficulties better yeah. I, I think the best way to put it is players come and go but a good coach will be able to adapt to any sort of meta anything that Watch or Blizzard can throw at you as a coach, you will be able to adapt to it once you understand how to coach and you have like a good like game understanding, you're gonna be able to slowly figure out every meta. Because every meta change is just just like for players, coaches are sitting down and slowly figuring out like we don't know what to do when all of a sudden Sigma is being introduced. Like we don't know how Sigma is gonna play out and how he's gonna fit in a meta. So we are just it's basically a good coach streamlined the process of figuring out a meta and working with the players. That's kind of what you have to have in your skill set for a coach to be successful. Uh, Joe, you want to go? I know you had some questions about the 2020 season. Yeah, this kind of uh, transitions nicely. Um, you, you mentioned that um, you hope that in the future, um, coaches are a little bit more mm-hmm. highly valued, you know, maybe needs to kind of shift the the power structure almost uh, behind the scenes, the meta power structure almost. Mm-hmm. Um, going into 2020, they're introducing obviously more and more travel. Do you think that could lead to that happening with how much travel is going to be um, invested? Do you think more teams are going to bring on even more coaches? Do they double down on the coaches that they already have? How do you think that affects basically your job mm, in traveling? I think that I think teams are probably I think in general Overwatch League right now is shifting towards looking at their rosters again and kind of figuring out where like the cost effectiveness is. Like if you spend 250k on a player and he doesn't carry your team 1v6, why do you pay a player that much when you could probably shave off 150k on a player salary, hire someone that might be slightly worse, but you have good coaches that can kind of build them up to a similar level. And I think I'm hoping that a lot of the teams are going more into long-term rather than short-term, how it used to be, especially with travel games. You kind of want to lock people in to definite contracts if you have that much of an unstable environment where you're like flying around the world all the time, mm-hmm. like you're shifting places. I would think that managements are starting to be smart enough to be like, okay, we need some sort of consistency in our lineup, and you don't get consistency from players. Meta shift, hero pool shift, you fall off, you start becoming better. But one thing that stays consistent or should stay consistent is good coaches. Good coaches are always going to stay good coaches. Someone like Krusty, you can start him in any 
single Overwatch League roster and he would do just fine with whatever players you give him. <laughs> Obviously, maybe not to the success of San Francisco Shock, but he will always do a good job and you will always get good value from the money you spent, pretty much. I'm hoping that will be the case, but I also know that a lot of the organizations are still figuring out how to make money of Overwatch League. So mm-hmm. there's going to be continuous shifts in contract salaries and expectations. I think in season one, everything was kind of like, oh, here, take all the money I have. I don't care. Teams are starting to realize, eh, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. That's why I'm assuming there's going to be a lot, a lot of changes coming to teams in the off season. A lot of changes. When it comes to those off changes, how do you how do you predict or how do you expect the the travel in the 2020 season to affect roster building? Do you expect rosters to get bigger? Do you think they're going to get smaller? More coaches being added? How do you how do you kind of think that's going to play? I don't think there's going to be more coaches. I think mm-hmm. at a certain point, too many cooks definitely applies sure. to Overwatch coaching. I think we found a good structure and with four coaches as we have right now. We have packing head coach, student macro strategy, I do player development, and Reapers is like our scouting kind of shifting coach. So sometimes he helps do with macro. Sometimes he helps me with player development if my workload gets higher. Sometimes he just disappears in his room and does like the scouting reports because they take a lot, a lot of time. And I think we have the one coach that is kind of rotating in between wherever he need, he is needed. I think if you would go beyond that, it wouldn't work out for our structure, but maybe there's mm. someone who has a coaching structure where you want to have six or seven coaches. But I personally don't think that it makes much sense because let's say you've dealt fewer with a main tank coach. I do player development, and you can't tell me that a main tank coach is going to have a workload that is worth paying him the salary he's probably receiving throughout the entire year. There's going to be times where you have fact fiction in stage three where he just perfectly fits the meta where I don't even have to talk to him ever because he just knows what he has to do and he's continuously improving on his own. But then you have a player like Shax who's trying to learn a new hero and you have to spend much more time in that. So I don't think role-specific coaches do enough mm-hmm. to like value warrant. them enough to actually like warrant, warrant their sense. salary. So I don't think there's going to be more coaches. And I don't think there's going to be l- super large rosters either because travel expenses just rise up. And I don't think there's much point. I think you're going to see rosters with two backup players maybe for important roles that you have to have backup players. For example, we would want a backup player for someone like Karif in case he falls out. So we have someone that is like somewhat comparable. I think you should have backup players for the players that are important to your roster, to word it that way. There's going to be standout players that you rely on. So if you have a backup player that is somewhat at a similar level or you can coach them up to a similar level, I think that's important. Or I think we are thinking of going in that direction of having a backup player that might be worse than my starter right now but slowly kind of making him almost like an apprentice and like slowly building him up to the point where a player like fact fiction who might be he's like an older player like that's just how it how it is 
that at some point we know that he might not cut it anymore. And so having someone on the bench that is a backup player for him that we can slowly help build up and fact can teach that player as well. I think that's like super beneficial. And I think that's kind of how we're at least thinking of the backup roles. But you see Seoul Dynasty, they have like ever shifting rosters. You see San Francisco Shock, they make use of that roster. So maybe they that's just their style of coaching and they want to keep that. So sure. they might just take that into next season. But I think it's very team dependent of what mm. they value in having backup players. I, I guess the the next concern or question that I think um, we, we both, I, mean, I think all three of us have really all kind of questioned once we hear some of the feedback from the homestands is how how are you kind of picturing practice on the road? Because we've seen or we've heard through the homestands that practice hasn't been fantastic, right? Yeah. Pretty hard. Um, so how has that been something that's been discussed internally with the Valiant? Uh, do you think that other teams have started to really kind of iron out what they want to do? Is it laptops? Is it, you know, plug and play USB VOD review on a projector? Is it flying out a whole contenders team? Like what's, where do you think, uh, the, the, the meta game of practice is headed? Where do you think? I think going? most of that comes down to the teams organizing homestands. Okay. Because like I can't influence what I'm working with in terms of like practice facility wise sure. there. Like when we came to Dallas, it wasn't necessarily bad, but I think the overall the overall level of games, like the quality of games will tank. Like that's a guaranteed if you travel that much, you're not gonna have the practice time that we have right now where we scrim two to three blocks every single day. That's not gonna be there anymore. But I, I'm hoping that teams that host these homestands really do go out of their way to provide as much practice quality as they can. And I think most teams will probably default to like laptops on the road or some something like that. Something portable. Something mobile and portable. But I think most of it will still come down to the homestand venues. Some are worse, some are better. Mm. Okay. Can, can I address... I? I I saw Brad mentioning that he expects, for instance, players to vote review on stream. I I think that is a really unrealistic. Oh yeah, that's situation. Unrealistic. So, do you do you, what? What do you think? Like, how how will practice have to shift? Like, what what new duties will come towards coach? Because I can't see coaches doing that. Right, like unless they get seasick from it or whatever. Like mm -hmm. watching watching footage on on the plane, that makes sense for them. But I don't think you can even have like any coaching sessions. It's just travel, otherwise, right? Yeah, I think like for me right now, travel games. Like some people, like some players, look at them like, oh, how much did you actually travel? And they're like, well, I almost never left the United States in my entire life. I'm like. Yeah, you're going to change that opinion real, real fast. Long-haul flights are not fun. Anyone who's ever sat in a plane for 9 or 10 or more hours knows how extremely exhausting it is and like jet lag is going to come in. So I'm not going to expect my players to sit in a plane and review their own bots. That's never going to happen. I want them to kind of chill and survive the travel as much as they can. And I think then you kind of... I think the biggest challenge is going to be streamlining and kind of breaking down the time you spent and spending it as efficiently as possible. 
which we personally have been doing already. Like we are not afraid to cut a block or cut VOD review if we don't think we get anything out of it, because why would I subject my players to additional hours when they don't do anything? Right? It's like, why would you have someone sit in the office for nine hours when you get the work done in four? Like, what's sure. the point? So I think a lot of it will come down to how good is your mobile setup and how well can you deal with jet lag? I don't think the flights itself are going to be much of a problem, but how fast can you get all of your players to be at their mental 100%? That's going to be the biggest challenge. And I don't know the answer yet. Mm. I have no idea how that's going to work out. I think that's for everyone with travel games. Sure. Who knows how it's going to work out? How much... Um, so, for instance, now we're, we of course, switching from a Thursday to Sunday mm-hmm. schedule to a Saturday-Sunday schedule, right? Mm-hmm. How, how impactful is it to just have those days? So, for instance, if you're playing on Thursday on set, uh, and you're playing again on Saturday, mm-hmm. can you really impact a lot is there a lot of impact you can have and in terms of what you can coach and how does that change towards this year's uh, next year's schedule where it's like maybe you need to play i'm not sure if you play twice a day i th- don't think that's the thing but you definitely play two matches in uh, saturday sunday back to back yeah uh i mean obviously as a coach you're not a fan of playing two games in a row like back to back it's exhausting for the players. They don't get a mental reset. You can't really do much about their current level of game understanding anymore. You, you can't really do a lot in, like, if you play Thursday, then you have Friday scrims and you play Saturday again. But it's for us, at least as coaches, it's reassuring to know that I get a full day of going over the same things I've preached for four weeks already again and making sure that they've heard that before the match starts because if i get a full day of scrims where i can drill it into them again and then i get additional time before the match where i can drill it in again and then i get a warm-up where i can drill it into them again the chances of them retaining most of the information is higher than having no time to talk to them so while there's not a lot you can do for me as a coach it's kind of like calming to know that i have the opportunity to talk to them rather than not having the opportunity but at the end of the day i think most of the quality of the matches will still come down well practice going to work out so i don't think the saturday sunday schedule is going to have that much of an impact i think players are going to get used to it after a couple weeks of playing back-to-back matches it's just a matter of shifting around i think it's much worse to how we had it this year where one week you play back-to-back matches and the next week you play one match, I think that's much, much worse than having consistency in it. Mm. Yeah, I get that. Uh, Joe, do you have any other questions about kind of like the 2020 season? Um, I, think, I think I got most of mine. It is very uh, hard to, to predict. Um, it's, it's hard to say exactly where, where things are headed. Um, I don't know if we want to jump back into, you know, what what happened with Valiant. Um, Was there a team that you'd say you had a hard time or had fun preparing for in the regular season? Was there a team that was was unique in that sense? Mm -hmm. I think Gladiators is always a challenge to prepare against because the coaching staff as a whole, they're kind of like us, like in the sense that they don't, 
really care of what other teams do. They just do their own thing. And if they think that they're on the right track and they do the right thing, they just keep going with that. Even if you look at some of their players and you think that's absolutely ridiculous. Like, why would you do that? They still pull it off. So you still have to go into the match with the mindset of they will throw anything at you and they have no shame about it. They don't care. Like if they want to play May Bastion Reaper Bunker or whatever, like they'll do it. Like they don't care. So you have to kind of be ready for everything. It's much easier to pe- prepare against a team like Vancouver where they play like very standard streamlined. It, that has been a game and that has been a thing in like any game. There's mm. teams that tend to favor the more standard play and there's the teams that like cheese their way through the brackets if they have to. So I think Gladiator is probably also it's like, oh I see Deep in the chat. It's like <laughs> it's like no shame. It's like some people are like, oh, I play a cheesy strategy. I'm che-. right. I, I don't agree with that. If a strategy gives you the best chances of winning, you pull off that strategy. Like who cares? W is W, but certain certain teams are more leaning towards so we play the meta game that's what all the teams have figured mm-hmm. out is the best way to play and that's what we stick to because it's a safe choice like when people look at us in stage three it's like why would you bench space like that's absolutely insane it's like we thought that's our best shot at winning instead of playing goats into vancouver titans yeah chung i won the stage of that exactly right? like, they, yeah. they just did whatever they felt like doing and i respect that a lot and Coaches that are not afraid to take certain risks. I think that shows that you have confidence in yourself and you know what you want out of the team. I guess you're all of the school of Monty thought. With the whole uh, outlaws thing going on. Yeah. Oh, true. The, the whole, like, it's the same thing. Like People were criticizing outlaws for doing something that is out of meta and like saying they would have more chances of success playing the meta. How do you know? Are you in scrims? Like, I have... Yeah, hours and hours and hours of data and VODs to judge my opinion based on. Analysts on the Overwatch League desk or even Reddit, you get to see one hour of gameplay on stage where I don't actually get to talk to my players. Which is like, really? Mm-hmm. Like, why do, you, why do you try to do my job with 1% of the information I have? Like, every, every time I read comments like that, I'm just like, you're just silly. What's the point? <laughs> Like, I do this professionally, and you're trying to tell me that the decision I made is wrong. I probably know if I made a wrong decision. And sometimes a loss is just out of your hands as a coach. Like, you can only influence so much. You can't handhold a player and be like, hey, remember the one spot I told you to put your Sombra Translocator in? Don't do it again. They will remember. Like, I can't do that in-game for them. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't know if you guys followed CSGO. But there used to be a time where coaches were allowed to talk to their players in-game throughout the entire game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The teams kicked the in-game leaders out because what's yeah. the point of having someone that is less focused on actually fragging but more focused on the strategy when you can have a coach standing behind you with all the time in the world to analyze situations and make the best possible decisions. If we had that in Overwatch, the quality of games would skyrocket if you have coaches actually making the best possible decision at every single given point. But you yeah. don't have that. A lot of it is just, oh, your player didn't pay attention for a brief second, got one shot by a Widowmaker, and you lose first point and then get snowballed on 2CP. Like, that's just mm-hmm. how the game works. I'm just going to say for a second, 
before before uh, Joe, you say your thing, is if you ever need some armchair analysts, promise. Oh. Us three right here are the best armchair analysts. We're really good at making assumptions. And I don't, I don't mind like <laughs> people kidding. speculating. I just hate the people that are so convinced that they're yeah. right. Like there's a yeah. difference between voicing your opinion, which I think is absolutely valid. Like anyone is entitled to their opinion mm. of what we do as a team and they are more than welcome to criticize us. But don't go out of your way to like ask for people to get fired or something like that. It's like every time Dell's few starts Zachary, like, like really? It's like, why would you ask for the coaching staff to be fired? They're working yeah. with what they have. Like it's, mm. it's so silly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a weird, because you, you talked about CSGO as well. And I was thinking of, okay, what kind of person would I add to a staff? Mm -hmm. And the obvious choice is, I don't know if, like, I, I think this story hasn't been blown up in the entirety of esports well enough. There's this sports psychologist that um, worked with Olympians in the past. Mm -hmm. Her name is Mia Stelberg. And she she was the one that got Astralis on the road. True. Like when they were True. tilt lords. She worked with OG, who won TI. And she recently started working with Ensha when they started popping off. I oh, think God. that is a pretty so solid you know, track record. So especially like going into the travel thing like you you say for instance okay so it, and it i definitely agree that it's like you during this podcast you've often said okay some things are out of the uh, coach's hand mm -hmm. like sometimes players don't do that and that and that i think mm -hmm. this is where the sports psychologist work starts oh, right? i agree yeah so I do think... you think that's a valid like addition to coaching staffs oh yeah absolutely like we have uh, a sports psychologist work with our players during mm -hmm. stage four and some of stage three and we're still offering them the opportunity to talk to a sports psychologist even now in the off season that if they feel like they need to talk about something or they have concerns or whatever they have someone to talk to and i think especially like the mental game in general is like right now it's on the coaches to somehow take care of that like i don't know how yeah. to make a player not tilt anymore <laughs> like yeah. i'm not qualified to do that job and i've never signed up to do that job and dealing with player mentals is like super you're you're walking on a razor thin line like if you say a wrong thing or you handle a player wrong way you could severely damage the relationship you have with that player and it may result in them never trusting you again so i think yeah. having someone that is actually qualified and knows what they're doing talk to the players and make sure they're at their best happy mental state at every given point is super important and i bet I would bet money on it that a lot of teams have lost matches this year based on the player being out of it or tilting or like giving up midway through. I, I would bet thousands of dollars on that, mm. that that happened. So I think a lot of the teams should look into sports psychologists, but a lot of teams are also not willing to afford a sports psychologist. Sure. Doesn't get better with travel, right? Most of these have exactly, yeah. like that's that's the thing. Once again, we're talking about getting um, value out of it. Like I think this what you said, right? Like a, a frontline coach that you just can't provide that as much value. The same thing we have the, this discussion even with Baroy about statistical analysis, where it's like, yeah, no, no you cannot provide like a full-time job uh, statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. But um, I think either you've got to turn into a hybrid, but it's really hard to then find a sports psychologist. 
that goes on the road with with the team, right? Like these guys are most of the time highly qualified, probably command a regular salary that is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Put the trouble on 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 top, and like it's it's hard to. Um, I don't think it's hard to justify the cost. I think it's hard to shell out for it, though. If you're, oh, yeah. if you're like, on a, for a sports psychologist, 100 to 150K or whatever, they would be asking, right? Like, the really good ones. I'm not sure if the same um, effect can be mm-hmm. can be done over uh, calls, maybe. I'm not sure if that's yeah, a possibility. I think Especially the, through time zones. I think a sustainable method is how we do it right now. It's like you pay for individual sessions rather than having someone with you the whole time because in stage three we never felt like we needed someone really there to talk to the players because they all seem overall like well grounded and adjusted but then you have a meta shift and people's mental it's kind of break and that's where having someone available that you can call and be like hey i need you to work x amount of sessions with the player and help him work through that problem might be something that is beneficial but yeah, ideally you would, in a perfect scenario, I would love to have a sports psychologist traveling with me 24-7 mm. on call duty through day and night. But obviously that's not possible because as you For said, yourself well, as well? Mm, sometimes I wish there was someone that I can talk to, like realistically speaking. Especially mm-hmm. if you join, like I went from MAME Academy, which was probably the best team environment I've ever worked with. We were great friends hanging out like the entire day, basically, seven days a week. There was never any issues at all. Then I go to Florida Main, which was the complete opposite. There was conflicts all the time. Like I didn't agree with the way the coaching staff was handled and a lot of other things that came through, which obviously, if you leave a team like that, and it kind of fucks with your own mental as well. Like If you think you're mm-hmm. a good coach and you come from a contender season that didn't go as expected, and then mm-hmm. you go into Florida Mayhem and you not a loser, nothing is done in the way that you're used to. And then you essentially get fired from the team and you join the next team that is also not performing that you have to build from the ground mm-hmm. up. Obviously, I would have loved to have someone that can help me like put another perspective to it rather than your own thoughts. Because obviously, if you work as a coach, you're like super critical of, or you should be super critical of yourself and the players and your team. So your job is essentially looking for mistakes. If all you ever do is look for mistakes, you surround yourself with negativity all day long. That's just, that comes with the job. So having someone available would probably been good, but I don't think I'm at a point. I was never at a point where I was like, I need a break right now and I need to talk to someone. I was never at that point. I was exhausted, but I was also happy that we were doing well. Oh. Let me just add, answer Deepay's question. Okay. How effective has your performance coach been, or your performance coaching has been? I know everyone wants one, but efficiency is hard part since very few people are qualified for sort. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, that's kind of like two questions in one, because I never did any sort of psychology work with my players, because as I said, I'm not qualified for it whatsoever. So me trying to do something like that would probably do more damage than it actually does good. It's like kind of trying to diagnose yourself. It's like, go to a doctor, they're qualified. Like, why would you potentially Mm. hurt yourself by being too proud to seek help? I think performance coaching in general, like working with players one-on-one has been super, super effective for us. Like KSF turned 
we wanted to trade away KSF because we thought he didn't have like a DPS player mentality and he wasn't like pushing advantages like a DPS player would. Mm. But, he, but he also never had someone work with him. So the second I said, like he was the first player when I joined LA Valiant that no questions to ask on the first day, he would just listen to me blindly. Like he would just follow everything I say. And I think having a player that is that coachable you could like a player can definitely like super benefit from that. If you have a, there's obviously players where you tell them to do something, they do it right for a couple of days and then they forget about it again. But there's players that don't do that. And I think differentiating between these types of players and holding on to the good coachable players and like getting rid of the non coachable players is like super impactful. Like KSF turned from a player that we wanted to trade to Boston to probably one of our best players throughout the entire year just by sitting down with him for weeks in a row and providing him with pages and pages of feedback. Like I would sit down and do one entire map of detailed analysis, like written down with drawings and everything for him for like four weeks straight, almost every day. And then you have, which I don't think a lot of teams make use of, especially especially the Korean teams, um, you can micromanage a lot in-game. Like, when I was coaching Sombra to Shaxx, I would always tell him, hey, it's like, you placed a translocator here, that was good, you should have placed it in this corner. So for him, it's a one-sentence message that he's reading in-game, but for him in the scrim, if he's ever going to be in that scenario again, maybe the next block, he will probably remember that and be like, okay, I shouldn't place my translocator here, because Promise said in the first block I should have placed it here. So I think that's a lot of untapped potential that teams are not making use of right now, where you can micromanage a lot in-game. Obviously, you need the right players for it. Some players just can't handle it. Like mm. Someone like Agilities, I don't, from my experience, he doesn't really do that well, like providing him that sort of feedback live. But someone like Shaxx or KZF, they thrive in it. Like They mm. love it. Like They adapt mid-game. They give me feedback. Like, when they die, they like type back to me it's like hey i agree like i should have done this like what do you think like there's a conversation going throughout the entire scrim which i think is like super beneficial and i think that's a lot of you kind of have both the super detailed feedback and you have the small micromanaged kind of things to prevent bad habits from forming and i think if you combine the two with a good structure you can get a lot of value on someone that is just dedicated to improving players Again, I don't agree with the whole tank coach, support coach, and DPS coach kind of thing. Sure. I think it's kind of laughable and silly. Uh, why? Just Because you just... don't have enough work. Like Anyone who's actually coached a team knows that there's going to be players that don't need feedback or very little help. Like yeah, someone... Man. It's like fact in GOATS. He's super good, Reinhardt. He knows what to do. All you have to help him is understand the macro strategy and how to make the best possible decision. But then you have someone like KSF who was not good on Zyre, so you needed to start from scratch and build him up. So I don't think having someone that is dedicated to main tanks and having him locked in that role is going to benefit you because maybe he's in a meta where his frontline is doing just fine. What is he going to do then? You can't just go and be like, oh, I just helped the DPS coach mm. because the DPS coach probably has his own things in mind. And then you have to align two people again. Everything just gets chaotic. Like I like our environment that we have right now where everyone has like their part of what they need to take care of. 
but every single person in their part decides what needs to be done. If Stoop thinks there's no point in doing a review after scrims, we don't do a review, review after scrims. Like he decided that as the macro strategy coach that he wouldn't get anything out of it, so we go home. If I mm-hmm. don't think there's feedback to do for a fact, I don't do feedback for I go to a different player. Mm-hmm. And I, I, don't, I think having these flexible roles and definitions help you have a smooth working environment as a coach rather than, oh, well, I'm the main tank coach and I can't do anything else but coach main tanks. I don't think it's beneficial. Here's a, because, okay, so from the outside, we hear, hear about the crazy hours. Like, I, yeah. one coach, I'm not going to say who it was, but he sent a letter to his organization asking his org to please only work 90 hours instead of 100 a week in the, okay. at the start of the season. Um, in that regard, that's two, two and a half jobs right there, right? Two and a half regular jobs, mm-hmm. in, in a sense. Do, um, what was your workload like? And is, isn't it potentially possible that you just go like, hey, we, we have a role coach here. Mm-hmm. He works 40 hours and then he works 40 hours. Because if you tell me now that you work 80 hours a week, that's two jobs right there, right? Under- I mean, obviously. Uh, I think that's team dependent. Like when I worked on Florida Mayhem, we would sometimes show up in the office at like noon, like 12, and would stay until like 10 p.m., which is obviously not sustainable over a long run. Sometimes the, the other coaches thought it's necessary i don't agree with that i would love to have overwatch league as a whole shift towards a more nine to five orientated schedule like Mm -hmm. instead of starting scrims at 1 p.m why can't you put your foot down and be like players can't sleep in until 12 because they stay up till 5 a.m playing overwatch why don't they have like certain times like why don't we start scrims at 10 scrim till 12 take an hour break start the next block at 1 to 3 p.m., do review until 4 and then go home. Like a normal, roughly like 9 to 5 job. Like that's good enough for most teams. Is that something you'd like to see the front office kind of put in place and enforce? Because like that's not no. at least uncommon here in the United States for like mm-hmm. um, like high school, K through 12 sports mm-hmm. and NCAA athletes. There are certain times that they can practice. There are certain people who can be in the room mm-hmm. when they're practicing an off season. Like, would you like to see some more like, hey, teams, 80 hours mm-hmm. a week is not a thing that you can tell your coaches that they need to do? Or- oh, yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, I would love to have someone govern that and be like, okay, listen, guys, you can't have these unsustainable schedules. But at the same time, it would kind of take away from the competitive integrity, I think, because if you as a coaching staff decide that's your best way of winning games, why is there a front office telling me what I can and can't do with my team? Like, I should be the one deciding how practice schedule works. But at the same time, I can guarantee you there's players that are burned out or have started to become burned out or they're, like, generally unhappy. We've seen people retire because they can't handle the schedule anymore. And I think that's on teams and coaching not being developed enough. Like, there's no streamlined process of, this is how Overwatch League coaching should roughly work. And this is what all teams stick to. There's teams that have 12-hour days. There's teams that have six-hour days. And I, I think it's up to the teams to decide how they want to schedule. For example, we would, we would go into the office at like 11.30, start review at 12, do it for an hour, scrim block for two hours, take an, an hour in between to review quickly, sometimes only half an hour. Oh, it depends how much we... There. Oh, some, sometimes in between blocks, we would 
maybe for 20 minutes, sometimes for the whole hour. It depends how much workload we have. And then we have another two-hour block, and then we either go home or we do another review. Like, that's basically just a lot of review and little scripts. Like, we were not a big fan of having, like, three block days because the last block is usually just a wash. Like, players are tired. They've gone through three full hours of review at that point and four hours of actually playing the game. So what's the point of adding another two additional hours just for you to kind of, like, pat yourself on the shoulder and be like, hey, we put in the work today? which I think that's a lot of what teams do right now. They put in the work for the sake of putting in the work rather than taking a step back and actually looking like, how much do we get out of these two hours? Is it worth it investing these two hours? Or is it worth it showing up 20 minutes earlier than usual and get the work that you wanted to do out of the way quickly and have like coaches actually have like a prepared streamlined process for you ready? So all you, it's like, imagine a teacher shows up to class with having anything prepared for you is just like eh fuck it open the workbook at page 12 and just start like working on it i bet there's plenty of teachers throughout my trust me yeah it it, it, it happened it it happened to me as well but it's like you don't get anything out of these lessons it's much better to have someone come in and have like a streamlined process prepared and ready to go where you kind of you have a red line to follow rather Mm -hmm. than putting in hours where you kind of make up the red line on your own like during review Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I, I'd love to be able to skip uh, video day. You know, I, I don't want to show up to geometry class if we're just going to watch an episode of CSI, you know, and, and take notes and, and do busy work, right? Busy work doesn't teach you me anything. CSI and Not, geometry class? Oh, yeah. That was, that was just the go-to. I don't have anything for you kids. Here you go. In ge- write, write like geometry? Like yes. Yes. Math? Yes. That, that yes. Now people are wondering why Detroit looks like it does. Jesus saying. Christ. Just saying. It hey, happened. We don't it, joke about real. Detroit here. I don't live in Detroit. I don't know how, how many times I have to tell this to you. I, I saw the map. That's Detroit, city. my dude. Oh, oh my god. It's oh, just god. like Deepay said in chat. You work as much as you feel like you need to work. Yeah. So certain teams yeah. just feel like they have to do more. Certain teams feel like they don't have to. It's up to the teams, and I don't think there should be someone telling you what you have to do. At the end of the day, I'm we as the coaching staff are responsible for the players. If you harm the players by overworking them, you should be held responsible and fired. That's how it is. Mm. Yeah. I will also say some organizational stuff is just either there's there's fights in in between oh. like the the upper management and whatnot uh, and coaching staff, or there is no connecting people that actually do real work. <laughs> so then other people have to ch- chime in, like. Uh, there are definitely scenarios where it isn't like okay, I gotta, I gotta fine tune those ninety nine point five percent to to ninety nine point eight. No, it's actually that, sure. if I don't work a hundred hours, my Jeez. team <laughs> like won't be able to enter the country or stuff like that, right? So yeah, it, there's there there are weird scenarios, and it's definitely not standardized in the league. Vod reviews for visas, visas? Is that what you're saying? Vod review for visas? <laughs> Basically, yeah. I think for us, it was just like every single kept their was pulling their weight. So it didn't really feel like we have to work that much. Like mm-hmm. every single coach trusts each other blindly. And there's like, I would sometimes not do feedback for four or five days because I wanted to see how players develop on their own. And they would never be packing, standing behind me and being like, hey, you didn't do feedback for a couple of days. What are you doing? Like he would mm. trust that I have the best intention for the team in mind. 
and they don't really follow up with me and just like i don't follow up with them like we keep each other in the loop of what we do like roughly but there's no detailed oh this is how it's gonna go like so some head coaches just like you have to to me every single thing you do and i'm thinking like at that point you might as well do my job like what's the point mm -hmm. of me going up to you with every single tiny thing i do and say to a player like mm -hmm. why do you need to know all of that to do your job as a head coach i think that's absolutely unnecessary and a lot of the head coaches are just over controlling and just want to know and do everything which i understand like you as the head coach you take responsibility for the team mm -hmm. so you want to feel like you are in control of what the team is doing and how it's gonna go but i think it's kind of unproductive and just takes a lot of time away like yeah. if i have I think... to write a report up for my head coach every single thing i do i'm gonna be writing reports half the time rather than actually working yeah i think the ownership that the head coach should then be taking is just like i'm responsible for hiring this guy mm -hmm. and if there are no results that's also on me for not accurately scouting yeah. what this guy's capable of, not keeping tabs on him, but definitely like, like trying to medically apply my coach. Like you, you take five grams of this each mm -hmm. day. It's like, yeah, and th that seems excessive and also not conclusive to uh, an effective work, work environment. Even though I understand the, I think in a in a sense it's actually admirable that some people just go so hard and want to mm -hmm. know everything that's happening because that just speaks to me that they want to have a personal responsibility. I mm -hmm. think they're, the, the mindset shift should just be my responsibility is of hiring people that can mm -hmm. do what I want them to do and have trust in that. And if, if that fails, yeah, then I'll also, sure, you could argue that there's less responsibility on you now, but overall, I think the effectiveness is just like, it's a no-brainer to... Yeah. go about it that way i think a head coach is just is the head coach is limited by the staff he's working with which is why every single time reddit is like oh yeah the head crusty or someone is just hard carrying the team that's not how coaching works there's no hard carry as a coach like if a team performs well there's probably a very big chance that the coaching staff as a whole is at least on the same page and kind of follows the same plan there might be a coach that does very little and there might be a coach that does a lot like Jiska said already some people have to make up for other people not doing their job properly which again it's up to the management to decide which is why if i would join a team as a head coach i would make sure i get full say of the staff that i hire because if you join a team with pre-existing staff and they don't go along with what you want them to do you're in a in a lot of trouble which is why for packing right now who's obviously announced as the head coach for next year already he's obviously forcing or trying to make sure that we get rehired for the next season so he has the same staff to work with and knows who he can trust rather than rehiring people uh yeah i think it's like super important to have good staff surrounding you that you can trust Makes sense. Yeah. I, I would imagine that it would probably reflect the players. You know, if you have a streamlined system throughout the entire team, it's going to, uh, you know, uh, replicate itself in the gameplay. If you have a, a fragmented coaching staff, you'll probably have fragmented strategy. So, yeah, it makes yeah. perfect sense. To answer Deepay's question, do you guys have full autonomy as assistant coaches? Does the head coach help you improve in your coaching and dedicate tasks? Uh, we do have full autonomy. We do. Like, packing is not going to tell me what I have to do in terms of performance coaching or individual coaching. 
obviously he has a certain thing in mind like he sets the the scrim schedule he says this day we have three blocks this day we only have two blocks this day we can cancel review or this day we cancel the block like he is still in full control of how the team operates which is what the head coach should be in charge of like he should be the one deciding of how the team is going to run but he wouldn't go up to me and say like i want you to try a feedback on ksf tuesday like he would be like what do you think of ksf right now do you think he needs some feedback if i say no i don't think he needs feedback he's fine he would be like okay i trust you just do what you think is best he wouldn't force something on me that i wouldn't want to do as the performance coach because he believes in I focus solely on performance coaching and making sure the players are at. So why would he go out of his way telling me what to do when he's not fully paying attention to performance coaching? Like he trusts that me paying attention to every single detail means that I know more about the player's current state than yeah. he does. You're there to do that thing and it's his job to... Yeah. Like there's there's you in it. aspects yeah. of your job that he has to know to do his job, yes. but it like, doesn't mean that he has to know every single little detail. Yeah. If you were the manager of an IT department and you hire someone to handle you stand and ask them every single thing of how to serve, you hired someone to do that job and they're taking care of it. You obviously ask for a certain amount of responsibilities like, hey, how's the current state? Like, what are you working on? And then your employee responds, hey, that's what I'm working on. You're good. And you go back into your management office. That's how a head coach is for me or a good head coach should be. It's like mm -hmm. you trust the staff you hired because you believe they can do the job that you hired them for and you take minimal action in in kind of like micromanaging them. Mm -hmm. And we don't really help each other improve in our coaching because we believe that all of us are good coaches and we have like a fundamental understanding of how we need to coach. Obviously, there are certain things that I do that Stoop doesn't do and he learns from me and vice versa. Like... I learned a lot about um, head coaching from packing. Like he head coaches completely different to how I head coach. So for me, it's like as an assistant coach, it's interesting to see how he handles himself because if I ever get another head coaching position, I can take the lessons that he learned throughout the year and apply them to my own head coaching. So I think it's just a lot of mutual respect. If you respect each other, you're going to learn on your own and kind of take the good things away and kind of advise each other on certain things that they're not doing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we actually got to get out of here. We've, we've kept you for a long time. Thank you for Thank letting you us for coming out. Yeah. Pick your brain on all the coaching things. It's been no really it's been insightful to say. Least. Yeah. Very informative for sure. Sorry I love, for all I love the questions that, we have, that I couldn't answer. I love that there we have so Deepay in chat just asking these <laughs> questions. Yeah, I, he was asking good questions. I mean, True. I, I'm sure Gladiators does things completely different to how we do things mm. at Valiant. So for him, it's probably also interesting to see how other teams operate. Yeah, I was like, I almost wish we could just pull Deepay. Just, just stick, like, stick him in a room and just record it, and that'd be, be very, exciting. very interesting. Yeah, a couple of LA I mean, coaches. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, I'm, I'm sure we all would all be happy to have him back on, right? Like, if, if he wants to come on. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think I've ever actually been on a show with him, so it'd be nice to... What? Like, Were you talking about? with yeah. I don't oh, think I, really? I, have, I don't think I've ever been. I think I've been absent. Yeah, the, the week that Damn. I was gone, I think, I think you guys had him on. So it'd be um, nice to, to have a chat. All right, Deepay, you're up next. 
soon. <laughs> <laughs> then I get to ask some questions. Yeah, there good you promise go. so comes you in. The chat. <laughs> ask the questions. He goes, You're... I had to dodge Volamel. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. You know, We can get the Lord out of here. No problem. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, before we get out of here, uh, promise, just thanks again for being on the show. It was awesome oh, having you. It was so uh, much fun. Incredible insight, as always. Um, before we get out of here, though, I mean, any, like, shout-outs, anything you want to say to the L.A. Valiant fans out there, people um, who, you know, have tuned in to listen to you and hear your insights? Not really. I think the L.A. Valiant fans have been awesome through the entire season. Like, even after every single loss, no matter how dumb the loss looked, they were always like, you guys are doing God's work as coaches, keep going. Like, they never doubted us at all, and they were with us all the way, even through the last loss. And even after the loss, we walked out of the venue and there were fans waiting uh, waiting for us. And they were like, don't worry about it. Like even you getting that close was already enough satisfaction for us, like seeing the season being turned around. So I'm very thankful for the fans being so supportive rather than some other teams where fans can be quite cruel sometimes. Yeah, I, I'd say LA fans in general have been pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. The teams have done a really good job at like fostering a, a nice, wholesome environment, keeping that toxicity level to minimums. And it's even reflected in the discords and, and elsewhere. So, you know, so kudos uh, to LA fans. I think for both Gladiators and Valiant, I think they both have some really uh, great yeah. fans. Um, yeah. So. Make sure to follow Promise at Promise underscore OW on Twitter. Do you do any streaming, any content like that at all? Uh, I'm hoping that I can start at some point, but the season, as I said, every game was a playoff game, so most yeah. of the time I come home and work more. And once I'm actually done working, I, I'm kind of over it. But I do want to start streaming, and I have a stream set up. I just haven't found the time to actually, you know, start. Awesome. But what I, What is that? Is it just at Promise on Twi it's, Twitch? It's promise underscore w again on promise twitch. underscore ow on twitch go give that a follow as well um yeah awesome well thanks again uh joe yiska uh let's go to yiska for shout outs for the week where can people find you man uh on uh on my twitter as usual i think i'll um i'll actually do some thinking it over in video format to, uh this time as soon as i get my mini i think i'll go going to start um uh baby blue offered herself up to edit like one of the thinking of us just to see uh like you know figure out editing a little bit so that should be fun um we'll see maybe i'll do some elaborate video essays and play around a little bit with the format my current idea is to drag it into more a bit of a the humorous part because i my my theory is the best you can do for content is make it drama if you if you can't justify drama ethically, you probably should joke a lot, and we'll see how that turns out. Awesome. Uh, Joe, what about you? Shoutouts for the week. Where can people find you? Find me on all of the socials at Volamel. That's V-O-L-A-M-E-L. -E um, any updates? Uh, I submitted the first draft of my big project, so that is currently being chopped up and uh, looked at. So that should be within a couple weeks uh, being published. I published uh, some uh, some Chinese players you might want to keep your eyes on for next season. I know that, uh, you know, got to stick with the brand. Um, and right before the show, I published... Uh, you know, a, a budding rivalry that uh, will be coming to a head on September 29th. 
Sinatra and Hawksaw might go back a little bit farther than you think. So go check that out. Awesome. Uh, as for me, you can find me everywhere at Kick Tripod, Twitch, Twitter, YouTube. That's where all this stuff gets posted is youtube.com slash Kick Tripod. We record live on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time at twitch.tv slash Kick Tripod. Um, big thanks to everybody who came out in the chat today. I know um, it's been awesome having such insightful questions from Dpay and the rest of the 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 Twitch chatters today. So thank you all for being there for that. Uh, excited. We should have some potential audio upgrades next week. Uh, Yiska, Yiska got his mixer almost today. <laughs> I, I put Yiska on the box and they couldn't, they couldn't deliver it. So, uh, tomorrow though, tomorrow. Yeah. It's good. And then Joe's just got the cables coming in. Joe's got the box. So that's going to be pretty sweet. We're going to, uh, there it is. Boom. Only like 12 people in the world have that guy. So, uh, saving the box. Yeah. It's, I'll sign it for you. Just kidding. Um, yeah. So, everything else. Uh, thank you to our Tactical Crouch producers, Battle Crab, Maid, and Peter Y. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you want to support Tactical Crouch, there's three easy, awesome ways to do it. Number one, leave a five star iTunes review. It's one of the best ways to help us get seen. Uh, on podcast outlets, most podcast outlets also pull that to aggregate where we show up in searches on like Spotify. So five-star reviews mean a ton. It is September. So you subscribe, if you sub on uh, Twitch, it's half off. Or if you gift subs on Twitch, it's also half off. So you get a sub for $2 and 50 cents and any of your renewals um, from then, I think the next month or whatever is also half off. So uh, great way to support. Otherwise, patreon.com slash tactical crouch. We're going to, we talked about doing some, maybe some bonus shows and stuff this week to actually go through and talk more about the games from this last week. So we didn't discuss mm. those a whole lot. Um, and that, you know, could be something that we throw up for patrons first, uh, stuff like that. So um, patreon.com slash tactical crouch is a great way to just support the show. Help us keep the show running, help us get the audio upgrades that we've been working on and things like that. So sure. All right, that's going to do it for us. A big thanks again to Promise for being on the show. Uh, Love to have you back anytime. I'll definitely tune into your streams. We're out of here, though. See you all next time for episode 53.